This presentation is from Design Research 2021, Day 2. We're very, very happy to be joined uh, first up by Lauren Isaacson, who joins us from Canada. Um, Lauren has been doing remote research from her home since 2016. When the pandemic came along, she was able to simply go, I got this and carry on. Lauren, good evening. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, so uh, I guess I should get started. So I am actually presenting from a hotel room. I am in the middle of moving house. So uh, so yeah, I guess if we're going to go remote, we're going to go all the way. Go all the way. I love it. Over right. to you, Lauren. Thank so you. I'm just going to. This is kind of the dream. All right. So we have. I mean, you can say think of it as negatively. Yeah, you have to do things remote now, or you maybe you have to do things remote some of the time, depending on where you are and what's going on. But this can be a great thing. You can now do research from anywhere at any time with anyone, depending on what you're after. So I've been doing research remotely, usually from my house, since 2016. And so I'm just here to share some of the technology options I know of and how you can get great insights without currently risking any in-person interactions. So there are lots of tools out there. Once you start looking, you'll see so many options that you can take advantage of. And there are tools you're going to be using all the time. They're kind of like the equivalent of the hammer in your toolbox. It's gonna to go on the first shelf, you're gonna want easy access to it, and you're gonna use it a lot. But then there are tools that you will use rarely, and those kind of go underneath that first shelf of your toolbox, but they are really great when you need them. And that's kind of like the equivalent of your socket wrenches or your Allen wrenches. You only need them for specific things. Now, I'm not here to recommend specific products, and I'm not here to endorse any one product. I'm just raising awareness that there are options available to you. So when you're thinking about your tools, it is really easy to get excited about a new tool that you wanna use, but try not to get ahead of yourself. First, understand what research objectives are, then what kind of people who will be participating and what they will be most amenable to, and then what kind of deliverables do you wanna have at the end for your own analysis and also to deliver to your stakeholders. You also want to think about privacy compliance. Only co collect the data that you absolutely need. Once you have all that established, then you can go ahead and select your tool. Think about the platform you want to use. So most of the agencies I work with just use meeting software, which does the job but lacks a lot of the helpful features you find in, in purpose-built research software, which can really increase the engagement of both the participants and the stakeholders and streamline your research process. Purpose-built research software also offers privacy compliance features that can really help protect you and your participants. When you are selecting tool providers, consider subscription-based pricing models versus project-based pricing models. If it's something that you're going to be using all the time, if like you work in-house or if you work for an agency and you know this is something you're going to just be doing on a regular basis, subscription-based pricing is probably great for you. If you're like me and you're a freelancer or you only do research on, on occasions, then you will want to look at project-based pricing options. A lot of places, they don't list their project-based pricing options, but if you ask, they'll give you it. Okay, then there are in-depth interviews. Okay, so to me, this is my hammer. This is what I'm doing like 95% of the time. Is professional research software necessary? Not really, meeting software will totally do the job. 
Pro software gives you a place to program your guide, hide and manage your observers, and share research stimuli and screening and do screen sharing, all while maintaining legal privacy compliance. Then there's usability testing software. So when I was working client-side and going from running tests in meeting software to running tests in usability testing software, it was kind of a game changer. It streamlined the process, it saved us time and money, gave the ability to run unmoderated tests on smaller interaction designs, which I could then hand over to the designers to run themselves. It also allowed for a way to hide and manage the observers. And also if we were doing, uh, if we were testing prototypes, it allowed me a way to show the participant the prototype without sharing the URL with them. So you want to kind of maintain who gets access to that URL, and I just didn't want it floating out there. The usability testing software allowed for me to give the URL to the, to the program. The program then overtook the, the, the participant's browser with a fake browser that obscured the URL, and they were able to play with the prototype without ever getting access to the URL. That what that mattered a lot. Then there's video focus groups. So this is like meeting software on steroids. It has a lot of the same features as pro research software with the added benefits of group dynamics. You can do a lot of the markup activities that you would normally do in whiteboard software, but never leave the research environment. It can get kind of messy if you're like, okay, so we're in this environment, but now we're gonna go over to this other platform, we're gonna do this exercise, and we're gonna go to another platform, we're gonna do this exercise. It gets kind of confusing. But if you can just do it all in one place, A, you have a record of that from the, from the research software, but now it's also, you're not sending your participants in a dozen different directions. Can you do it in meeting software? Sure, but you lose the security and the observer management and, the, and that all-in-one benefit. So I don't know about you, but I get asked to deal with requests for to run faster turnarounds on my research all the time. In-depth interviews may be my primary research tool, but I have options if I need to be faster and I don't need depth. Depth is the key word there. Text-based focus groups can accommodate up to eight participants and last up to 90 minutes. Now, pro software allow for guide programming, observer management, and real-time tagging. Another benefit of this is that because they're text-based, they're already transcribed. You're not waiting around or paying extra for a transcription. Then there are online asynchronous focus groups. These are also known as bulletin board focus groups or temporary online research communities, whatever floats your boat. So these give you the benefit of speed and depth with lots of flexibility. So every time I get a demo from one of these uh, providers, I am amazed at how many new features they have packed into these things that can really enhance your research process. They can usually handle up to 16 participants, but they can do a lot more if you're studying things like persona groups. You can do one group from here, one group from there, one group from there, and do it all at once. They usually last up to two to three days, but can last as long as a year for a longitudinal study. You can ask participants to dedicate about 30 minutes a day at their convenience. So they can do 10 minutes here, 10 minutes there, and another 10 minutes there, or they can do 30 minutes all at once. It's really up to them. It has a lot of flexibility. Uh, they are primarily text-based exercises, but they can handle video questions and answers, and they also have whiteboard capabilities. You can hide answers or share them with the group to encourage deeper discussions. So groupthink is definitely a risk when you're running groups. You want to be very careful of that as a moderator. 
there is a way to manage that in these online groups by hiding everybody's answers completely so that the participant never see the answers from the rest of the group. Or you can select, if, you can select to hide them temporarily. So you hide everybody's answers until the participant has submitted their own answer, and then they can see everybody else's answers after that. You can incentivize interactions. So if interaction is really important to the group dynamic, then you can incentivize to people to do that. So the more they interact, the more they get paid. You can also anonymize participants. So if you are testing something or researching something that has is of a sensitive nature, you can just hide everybody's identities completely. They don't even have to post a photo or use their name. You give them all code names and code avatars. You can also analyze the data in real time, which can really speed up your reporting process. Then there are diary study applications. These are a lot like those bulletin board focus groups that I mentioned previously, but without the interaction components. Studies can last days, weeks, months, or even years. You ask questions and assign tasks, allowing participants to show you their experience from their point of view. That is the entire purpose of these applications, is to understand your participants' point of view. You can maintain engagement by incentivizing task completion, and good participation can be a qualifier for additional interviews or on-site visits. You can also analyze the data in real time. Now, you don't need expensive equipment to get eye tracking data. Some platforms calibrate the participants' computers to track their gaze with no additional hardware. So as you can see here, basically all it is, it's the camera, it's looking at people's pupils, it's seeing where they are looking on the screen if you are sending them to a specific screen, and then it's giving you a heat map afterwards showing you where people looked. Now there's also facial coding, which kind of does the same thing as eye tracking, but it's actually coding your face and what your expressions you're making while watching something or experiencing something. You can show people a video, engage their expressions with no additional hardware. These can be really great for augmenting in-depth interviews for video content. So you show someone a video and then you can look at the data afterwards and they can ask them just like, hey, the 30 second mark, it looked like you were kind of confused. I'm wondering what you thought was going on there. And so that can help enhance your discussion. Then there's dial testing. So this is very traditional. So back in the day when I was working with media companies, they would actually take people into a room and give them a physical dial. And they would dial it just like, I like this part. I really don't like that part. I kind of like this. I kind of don't like that. And then you can aggregate the data afterwards, or you could use it to enhance an in-depth interview. Now it's all virtual. So they're just kind of using their using an interface on their screen to, to do that same kind of dial interaction, but it's virtual, it's not physical. If you are testing physical products or environments, there are augmented and virtual reality apps specifically dedicated to research. And it's kind of fun. So you can test certain arrangements or designs without investing in a physical product in order to test it. And so it really helps you when you want to like make certain changes or you want to iterate because it's all virtual. It's all in a virtual realm. There's no physical product to invest in. So with virtual reality, if you want to test a full-on environment, this is done a lot in like shopping tests where it's just like, well, if we have this new uh, box design, where would it go on the shelf? And then you can like send people down a virtual aisle away and see where their gaze is drawn to on the shelf. And they can go, are they gonna buy the Cocoa Puffs? Do they even see the Cocoa Puffs? And then you can kind of ask them about that afterwards. 
with augmented reality, if it's a physical product, that way they have ded their dedicated apps that will digitize your product and put it into an augmented reality app specifically for research and also help you with the tech support. And this can be a lot of fun because then you can, the participants can see, oh, this is what that chair would look like in my living room. And here are the different kind of upholstery options that I can get. And this is how I think it would feel and how it would relate to my body. Hmm, would it look good in my living room? Would it not look good in my living room? What do I like? What do I not like about it? And so you can kind of get a feel for how the design will hit with your, with your customers without ever investing in a physical product. So when you are testing mobile apps and software, it can get kind of complicated. So you can use mirroring applications. And with mirroring apps, what you want to do is you want to mirror what's on, the, um, what's on your participant's phone screen to their computer, and then they share their computer screen with you. So that way they can use their phone however they feel most comfortable, which is great. But you need to know what kind of computer they're using. You need to know what kind of phone they're using. You need to know what software will work with that computer and that phone. And then you got to do tech support to make sure that they are mirroring and, then it's, and that that's all working the way it should. Then there's also meeting software. You can just ask people to join the meeting from their phone. In my experience, that is not that stable, especially when they start sharing their screen through the meeting on their phone it drops a lot. And so that's a that's really tough. I wouldn't recommend it. Then there are usability testing platforms. These are native, native apps that live on the participant's phone and it's far more stable. You're probably gonna get a lot more quality insights because you're not spending a ton of time on tech support and stuff like that. So, a lot of these tools are gonna to be new to you. So don't expect to use them expertly on the first try. That's just completely unrealistic. Think of ways you can practice before you use it for real. Get training from the vendor and ask them to provide an opportunity to do a dry run. You can do that practice run with coworkers or friends or do a pro, pro, a pro bono project for a charity. You wanna ensure research quality and insight adoption by making your stakeholders active participants in the research. So a back channel is a way to allow them to communicate with you without being seen by, by, the, by the participants. You can use a messaging platform. So sometimes I will use a dedicated channel in Slack and have them instant message me with uh, additional probes they want me to make or if they want to uh, make a comment or something like that on how it's going and if they wanna make changes. You can also use text messaging. So um, this is really good if you, have, if you have stakeholders who really like to pester you every five seconds with a new probe to do. This way there's a little bit of friction if they're texting you. And then there are built-in options. If you are using professional research software, there is a built-in option for that back channel. I am a big fan of transcriptions. I always get them. I think they are the best. They really speed up your analysis process. So, there are human power transcriptions and these are expensive and they take a while, but they are very high quality. So you know that what you're getting is exactly what it should be. Then there are AI powered transcriptions and these are fast. They have a about a 20 minute turnaround time. They're about $6 US to, to get a transcription done. Um, and they're really great if you don't have a lot of a budget, but you will need to take time to go through that transcript and make all kinds of corrections because it will get a lot of stuff wrong. 
Okay, then there's analysis. And you have a lot of options when it comes to group to analysis. You can be doing it on your own or you can do it with a group. If you're doing it with a group, you can use paper, highlighters, and scissors. And this can be a fun way to get the team together, go through all the transcriptions, and get on the same page as to what happens. Because you can do affinity mapping together by cutting out the different statements and putting them together uh, around different themes. You can also use spreadsheets. So if you are using a human-powered transcriber, you can actually get your transcription put directly into a spreadsheet. And then you can tag things any way you want and sort and filter so you can see all of the all of the different interviews and the themes around the interviews in aggregate. And that's really great. Then there's tagging online documents. This is easy, but it's messy and it doesn't really give you an aggregate view of what you're looking at. Okay, then there are collaborative affinity maps. I had a client, they didn't have a lot of money, so they didn't want a full report. So they asked me to just work with their team on a collaborative affinity map. So we all just got together after the research and could be done virtually. We put to, we were on a, a whiteboard app, we put st stickies around different themes that we saw and built the analysis that way. Then there's qualitative analysis software. These days, I never do a project without getting qualitative analysis software. It's usually not that expensive. I can get it just for the project and it helps me highlight and tag any way I want and then view all of the data that I got in all kinds of different ways. So I hope by now you kind of feel like, oh my God, I have options. There are lots of things I can do. You have totally got this. If you wanna go remote and you wanna go remote and using all kinds of fancy things, you can go remote using all kinds of fancy things. Try, learn, adjust, repeat, okay? I am always learning, I am always getting things wrong, and I'm always improving for the next time. So take the same kind of attitude. Take a student attitude and experiment away. And I hope that you have fun doing remote research. So thank you. Thank you, Lauren. That was wonderful. I have, I have a very quick question for you. Um, actually, somebody has just sent through a, a question, which is whether there are any specific tools you would recommend for qualitative analysis. I know you just said- I'm not here to no, endorse no, anything. <laughs> so yeah, um, here's the thing that I would recommend you do. So mm -hmm. there are directories out there for uh, all kinds of research tools. So um, there is a tool, there's a directory that I like to use that lists a lot of different products that are out there. And I can put that into the, into the general Slack channel. Please. Um, Please so I'll do that afterwards. There's other things you can do. So you can join um, research associations. So research trade groups are really awesome. Um, I'm a member of one and they do a thing called demo days. So they have a series of days where it's usually like an hour, an hour each day and they get a bunch of vendors together and each vendor has 10 minutes to demo their product. And so that's a really great way to get uh, to familiarize yourself with all the different options that are out there and all the different tools. And if there's tools that you're really excited about, uh, get, in, get in touch with the vendor and have a sales rep do a demo for you. And sales reps love doing demos. So don't be shy about asking for one. So yeah, those are some options that you have um, for learning about all the different things that are out there. That's wonderful. Thank you very much, Lauren. Enjoy your evening. Thanks.